Wow. You know what? Somebody asked me the other night, or they asked me last night, uh, uh, why I seem so upset about this subject. <laughs> and I was going to be in a good mood today. I, <coughs> I was going to be as nice as I've ever been here. <coughs> and that just went out the window. <coughs> I do want to say, I do want to say that, um, you know, you guys can have a better team right now. Um, we do have our integrity, however. And so, so we will take that. <coughs> this has gotten off to a bad start. Let's go back in time. <coughs> All right. Internal evidence session two. The logic of faith from internal evidence. Subtitled, Preparing Your Mind for the Trial of Transmission. Since the Dark Ages, there has not been a period of time where people, and I'm especially speaking to those who have access to a Bible, and more especially still, to young people with said access. Thank you, sir. are less interested in the Bible and having an actual expository Bible study like we are witnessing in what we might call the modern evangelical Western church, or what the Bible would call Laodicea. A curious phenomenon indeed, especially when one considers the avowed purpose of the modern translators and the modern translations, which is to present Scripture in a manner which is up-to-date and relevant doing so with the unwavering confidence the average American pastor possesses, that in order to get young people and new converts interested in Bible study and church, they must necessarily dump the authorized version for a newer Bible. But a Laodicean pastor is certainly no animal which can be confused with empirical facts, are appealed to on the basis of final authority. <coughs> they understand but one language, pragmatism a motive they desperately seek to mask with saccharine spiritual talk about loving others and seeking to disciple themselves out of a job, read, want to leave their church, are about to be fired. Which is ironic, as they are all, almost by definition, blind to the obvious. To wit, modern versions are not promoting an interest in Bible study or scripture memorization, or holiness, or consistency, or maturity, or evangelism, or increased surrender to missions, or adding to the faith of virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, and charity. <coughs> These aforementioned are in fact waning, and that without controversy, as the church edges ever closer to the rapture, preparing to go out with a whimper. The whole stupid, poor, blind, miserable, naked mess with eyes squinted and hands lifted, hill-songing it to the very last trump, all the while with Jesus Christ knocking, trying to get in. And I say that the Laodicean church might very well just hang up a door, or hang up a plaque outside that door, communicating to Jesus that <clears throat> if this church is a-rockin', don't come a-knockin'. The rise of modern versions 
and their subsequent proliferation has produced only greater doctrinal division and confusion and schism and again that without controversy. They have only given rise to more false teachers. They have only made exposing these false teachers and their damnable heresies more difficult and have only caused more doubt and unbelief. In short, if the goal of the modern pastor was to make disciples the most pragmatic thing for him to do would be to stick with the book of the Philadelphian age since that is the only book that seemingly does the job. A book, BTW, which has seen more souls won more missionaries sent, more churches planted, more revivals initiated than all other modern versions combined, including the original autographs. But even if they wanted these results, I maintain they don't. But let's just spiffball this morning. Even if they wanted these results, they would never get them. Now, they may get big numbers, though most of them don't, they may get recognition, though most of them don't. They may get a career, though it will never be a calling, a point I intend to make before this is all said and done. They may get asked to speak at conferences, though most of them don't. And they may get friends at these conferences with whom they can attend other conferences slash vacays with their fledgling pastor's wives, which is the most most of them will be able to hope for. But ladies and gentlemen, here is what they will not get. They will not get to see the real payoff of ministry. Not in this life or the next. They won't get to see what it's like for a young man to receive the key of David from the Holy Spirit and begin unlocking the hidden treasures of the knowledge of God, opening a door of kingdom authority in his life that will one day Grant him a glorious entrance into the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. He won't get a disciple who lives by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God or even believes that's possible for the obvious reason that their worldview, their hermeneutic, their theology prevents them from believing that there is or ever has been a perfect Bible. And for that same reason... He will not get a church that refuses to let one of God's words fall to the ground. And for that same reason yet again, he won't get the pronouncement of commendation from our Lord along with its subsequent rewards for having kept God's words. A Philadelphian commendation, I might add. Or did you perchance conveniently stop viewing Revelation 1 through 3 as a prophetic perspective of the church age curiously about the church time you dumped the book. I mean, you have to admit, if that's not crass pragmatism, it's awfully convenient timing. <laughs> I am forced to find a bit of irony, BTW, into the fact that most millennial evangelical churchgoers will miss out on the millennial reign. Either because they'll be in hell, this would be the overwhelming contingency, or they don't even know that there is a millennial reign, which is sad, because that happens to be just a synonym for the stinking theme of the Bible. Or, maybe accidentally 
at one of these Christian communities that's growing in circles. Someone asked me about that last night. I don't care if you meet in circles or rows, but if you don't have the right Bible, you ain't going to grow the right way. And if you have the right Bible, you can meet in parallelograms. Maybe they accidentally stumbled across what comprises nearly 66% of the literature of the Bible, either directly or indirectly, but were told by some covenant replacement theology hack that those passages aren't to be taken literally because now the church is the Israel of God. Barf. Of course, Romans 11 has already given its opinion of people who would have that perspective of having replaced Israel. And I know that I've been accused with maybe being mean-spirited and using emotionally charged verbiage, but you have to admit, I'm in good company with people like Paul, calling people like that ignorant, right? And conceited and blind. Well, that sounds like my folk right there. <laughs> <coughs> Brothers and sisters, no one will receive a glorious entrance into the kingdom of heaven without possessing the key of David. And no one, mind you, no one, who has the key of David is resting upon the foundation of naturalistic New Testament textual criticism, which either ignores or denies the providential preservation of God's word transmitted from language to language in a pure text as doctrine. No one. Sadly, Modern pastors, by and large, <clears throat> will never be able to see these aforementioned results in their ministries for this primary reason. If those results indeed do require the possession of said key, then they can't impart what they do not possess. For it can never be found the key of David can never be found in a love of ideas, meeting people where they're at, purposely designing a church administration that annoys your grandfather for whatever reason. Poor grandfathers. <coughs> I heard Alan Shelby said something about me ripping on this being your grandfather's church. I I haven't had the guts to confront, him, to confront him about that yet. We'll have to, have to see what he said. It can never be found in doctrines and fundamentals and creeds and thoughts and administrations and perceived sincerity. The key of David is given by the Holy Spirit alone through the love of God's words alone found in a book's codex alone Brothers and sisters, if preservation is a doctrine and how you cannot believe it is, again, fairly boggles the mind. If preservation is a doctrine, would it not be the zenith of spiritual hypocrisy to force upon the bride of Christ the intermingled and corrupted seed of a version of the Bible which denies preservation, whose advocates deny preservation, whose manuscripts were produced by scribes who denied preservation? And how should we think 
that we could use and promote and teach from and preach from such Bibles without suffering from what would be the just condemnation of God for having so done, a generation of English-speaking churchgoers which has lost its faith in the English text. To that extent, there's a few things I want to get off my chest before we get into the material itself, if you'll humor me. So, a popular line of conversation from people who have committed apostasy when it comes to the word of God, i.e. they once taught exactly what I'm teaching, okay, and now are completely, it's like they have so suffered from PTSD, from all the mean King James people that they can hardly remember ever believing all this stuff. So it will go something like this. You know, you ready? You know that uh, your grandchildren won't be reading a King James Bible. Hmm. Wow, did you divine that from the, what, the Urim and the Thummim that you (laughs) have discovered somewhere? And some ditch in Kansas or Missouri? Number one, if you would be so kind, speak for your own snot-nosed grandchildren. Who do you think you are? Don't speak for mine. Keep your vile mouth off my kids, my family, and my posterity. I'm serious. Just leave family out of it. See, and you accuse me of getting too personal? How much more personal can you get than assuming your apostasy on my kids? But you're getting close to a line you don't want to get any closer to than you are right now. Number two, in some cases, these charlatans may actually be correct. But number one, if my grandchildren dump the King James Bible, what does that have to do with the truth of the King James Bible? When did our standard for what we do in church become vox populi, vox dei? I mean, you're rather showing your cards there, aren't you, Smoothie? And secondly, for them as well as others, it may, it may be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Maybe if the spiritual leader of a home and a family pronounces to the family that we're all getting rid of our Bibles because, I mean, heck, we're not really going to stick to this position in the succeeding generations anyway. I mean, haven't you sort of made that decision for them? Now is time, I suppose, to give honor to whom honor is due. due. And so I would like to thank Brother Sam Gipp, Brother Brian Donovan, Dr. Gene Kim, and them primarily for 
the lion's share of what I was able to do to put this together comes from uh, amalgamations of those men. <laughs> if I say anything that sounds intelligent, I probably borrowed it from those guys. If I say something stupid, that would be the admixture of the actual me. <coughs> I also would like to thank Mark Trotter because I have noticed I am using a lot of his material from the osmosis of plagiarizing him for the last two and a half decades. <laughs> it's got to be annoying for Mark to have his evening session screwed up from stuff that I'm saying that he was going to say that he said 20 years ago. <laughs> that's got to be that's got to be rough. And, and, and he still hugs me. I wouldn't hug me. <laughs> I would also like to thank Frank Pardue, if he can hear me. I, I don't have any of his material, but uh, sort of the je ne sais quoi and the spirit in which I carry things out, I think I picked up from him. So <laughs> if you get a blessing from that, Frank, see you soon, buddy. I'd like to thank Edward Hills, Dean Burgeon, the doc himself, Otis Fuller, and I would like to also thank all the false teachers out there and all the people who have dumped the King James Bible and now attack it because the truth is, you are the wind beneath my wings. <laughs> you are the reason I wake up in the morning, friend. You are the reason I study, and that is the truth. Be thankful for false teachers. They keep us on our toes. They keep us reading. They keep me from watching Everybody Loves Raymond and eating cocoa pebbles until the rapture. <laughs> and finally, and mostly, I would like to thank Bill Bartlett. Bill Bartlett taught me more than maybe all of these other people combined. And he taught me how to do it with class. I just ignored that part of it. <laughs> <coughs> For whatever reason. He had some rules. He had, he had about seven rules of public speaking and preaching, and he had about 13 of ministry <coughs> that I was able to codify with my brother. His first rule being this. If you're going to get up and speak, number one, you ready? Don't be boring. Number one rule. Number two, in accomplishing rule number one, decibel level and controversial speech is a poor substitute for compelling material. But it's still better than being boring. <laughs> rule number three. If you don't accept my point of departure, I cannot teach you anything. If you don't accept my point of departure, I can't teach you anything. The Bible's point of departure for its, for its own authority is preservation. And I want to talk to you this morning about what you lose by not accepting that point of departure. For instance, if you don't believe in infallibility, if you don't believe in infallible preservation, then what is your intellectual basis for the infallible inspiration of the original manuscripts? What would be the purpose of God providing an, inf an infallible original if he didn't intend to infallibly preserve those words in the subsequent ages and languages? 
And if the human authors of these originals were not infallibly inspired, then how could we be sure their record was true? How could we be sure what God was telling us and which parts were in error? We would have absolutely no authority on which to question a single false doctrine. You see, if the critical text advocates were so, sh- uh, were, were so sure and their method was so exact, then why are there more than 200 English Bibles and counting? Let me be the first to advance the radical notion that that tends to be a symptom of a very non-exact approach. I would say that the most exact approach would wind up with the most exact number of product. One would be the number I would be looking for. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to identifying the New Testament text, there are quite obviously two radically different points of departure, which in accepting one and rejecting the other, and if dear old dad was right, and he almost always is, annoyingly, even maddeningly so at times, then if you accept one premise, you cannot accept the teaching of the other premise. We have two points of departure from two different Bibles, from two different religions, because there are only two. You have to understand this about Satan. There are only two religions. He gives 500 names to one of them, so it looks like you're choosing between one of 501 choices, but you're not because 500 of them are actually the same. They're teaching human effort and merit and performance-based acceptance with God. And the other one teaches salvation by grace through faith alone in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I don't care if you think you're getting to the next life, to Valhalla, to heaven, to nirvana, or to a planet with 180,000 virgins, so help me. You're still teaching that you get there by human works. There's only two religions. And if you don't think that Satan has a game in the Bible business, and if you think that Satan doesn't operate the same way, well, you, friend, are a rube. The logical point of departure for unbelief whenever and wherever and by whomever it is employed is a denial of preservation causing a demonstrably pejorative effect on the faith in God's word in any language at any time, whether you conceptually engineer a Bible from textual transmission to the original manuscripts forward to the Bible in your lap, or you reverse engineer it from the Bible in your lap backward to the originals, you end up with the same result and the same two philosophies. Proverbs chapter 22, verses 1 through 22 You would recognize, probably, especially at the end of this week, you would recognize that this is the passage from which we get the title Certainty Conference. Because this is the passage that talks about the certainty of the words of truth. But what's interesting to me about this passage is its surrounding context. Do you know what Proverbs 22, 1 through 21 is all about? It's all about what a young convert needs to grow, whether or not he is in a row. I did not mean to rhyme that, but that sounded pretty cool when it came out. (laughs) Do you know what the young convert needs? 
I'll put up my hand when we come across what he needs as I read. You ready? Here we go. The young convert needs a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. The rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. A prudent man foreseeth the evil. He needs to be able to do that. He needs to hide himself from evil. But the simple pass on and are punished by humility. That's what the young convert needs. I skipped that one and I admit it. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the froward. He, he that doth not keep his soul shall be far from them. Train up a child. He needs training in the way he should go. And when he is older, um, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The rich ruleth over the poor. The borrower is a servant to the lender. He that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity, and the rod of his anger shall fail. He that hath a bountiful eye, that's what he needs, shall be blessed, for he giveth his bread to the poor. Cast out the scorner, and contention shall go out. Yea, strife and reproach shall cease. He that loveth pureness of heart, that's what he needs. For the grace of his lips, that's what he needs. The king shall be his friend. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge. What he learns, he needs to preserve. And he that overthroweth the words of the transgressor, this guy needs to be able to outdebate the other guy. I'm sorry, it just comes down to that, folks. Every now and then, it comes to who can throw the hardest and knock the other guy down, spill his mud, and drop him to the pavement. He needs to be able to learn to fight. The Lord needs to be able to teach the young man hands to war. That's what he needs. It may not sound spiritual, but it is. Lots of things that are spiritual don't sound spiritual. Get used to it. The mouth of the strange woman. That's what he needs to be kept from. The young convert needs to be kept from the mouth of the strange woman. It's a deep pit. He needs, verse 15, the rod of correction. He needs, verse 17, to bow to the Lord. He needs to be hearing the words of the wise. That's why these conferences are important. That's why things like this are important. It's important to come to these conferences and to bring people from your church to them, especially young people. He needs to learn to apply his heart unto knowledge, verse 17, because it's a pleasant thing. He needs to learn, verse 19, to trust in the Lord. He needs to learn, verse 20, excellent things in counsels and knowledge. Why? Look at the very last verse, 21. I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth. He can't just have the certainty of the words of truth, but once he is certain that they're true, it is then and only then that he can actually start learning them. It may sound counterintuitive, friends, but you've got to get to the point where you say, God, I believe every word in this book. Now, teach me what's in it. And then, if he can do those things, he will be able to finally answer the words of truth to them that sent him. Folks, do you know that all of that hinges on the young convert opening up a Bible and not doubting that a single word should be in there? The reason modern versions will never produce a love for the word of God in young people and new converts is because what gives them that love is the certainty that what they are calling the word of God is indeed the very words of God. 
The spirit of churches and young people with modern versions is not one of authentic Bible study. And I mean this for reasons other than the obvious, i.e. the commandment to study the Bible as an approved and unashamed workman unto God has been expunged from their texts. 2 Timothy 2.15, you'll notice if you don't have a King James Bible, you don't have the commandment to study it. Now I wonder, what would motivate translators to take the one commandment to a new convert to study the Bible out of the text? I say it because the very point of departure of these Bibles and the pastors and the professors and the authors who endorse them is to lead these people away from the certainty of the words of truth. No, friend, that is not an evil surmising. Simply listen to them. They will admit it. That is indeed their goal, their stated goal. And it is to lead them away from a certainty of the words of truth to the logic of unbelief. If we would win the hearts of young people in new comforts, it should be stated that we can accomplish that with the logic of unbelief, with new Bibles, as some of them are indeed doing. But if we want to win them over, not to us, but to Jesus Christ and to God and to Zion, which they are not doing, and how could they, not believing we have access to every one of God's words, then we must instruct them in the logic of faith. We must demonstrate how this logic leads safely and surely to the true Bible text, access to which being promised by the Bible itself. Here is a possible blueprint of exactly how you might do that. The logic of faith as our point of departure and how it leads to the true Bible text. You have in your notes a five-fold plan. That is my fault, not anybody else's. Scratch five-fold plan out. First, we need the foundation of Scripture over human reason. That is the first key to the logic of faith over the logic of unbelief. It is a foundation of Scripture over human reason. Now, what is Scripture? John 6.63 says only God's spirits are only God's words are spirit and life. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says that if we're going to understand the spirit of God, we have to compare things that are spiritual with things that are spiritual. Now, if only God's words are spirit and life, then if you're going to compare things that are spiritual with things that are spiritual, you're only going to be able to arrive at truth by defining scripture with scripture. Both sides of the aisle will agree that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and both sides of the aisle will say that with pride. The problem arises when you start defining scripture and you discover that they don't mean nearly the same thing when they speak of scripture that we mean when we say it. What the critical text and textus receptive henceforth to be called CT and TR because I refuse to keep saying those words. What the CT and TR advocates mean when they say scripture or even Bible turns out to actually be original autographs, which, according to the Bible, every time the word scripture is used, not one time in scripture does the word scripture refer to an original autograph. Not a single time. 
So I'm wanting to know where you're getting your definitions. Because it ain't in here, Bunky. If you're going to use a Bible term, will you at least dignify the Bible enough to let the Bible define the term that you're using from it? And none of those manuscripts were ever compiled into a single source Bible. So you can't call that a Bible either. They are documents, the original autographs, they are documents for which God has apparent little regard. A point which makes the scholarship onlyism advocates downright apoplectic, which I'm going to admit I kind of enjoy. I kind of like just throwing certain things out there and watching them spaz. Yet it is nonetheless axiomatic both in specific revelation of the word of God itself and in the general revelation of history that God has very little regard for the autographer. Oh, holy autographer. Do you listen to these people talk about these pieces of paper? We're bibliolaters, are we? When they say scripture, they mean original manuscript pieces of paper that they have never seen, their imaginations being vainly puffed up about what is in what they have never seen. When we say scripture, we are talking about a King James Bible. So when we say, I believe the Bible is the word of God, the difference between us and them is we're not lying. 53 times, 53 times, 53 times in Scripture. When Scripture says Scripture, out of 53 times, it doesn't refer to an original autograph once. And from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, Timothy, this Greek child. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. You, know, you think, is that an original autograph? I went to Bob Jones University. My, my Greek professor there taught that he had the original autographs in a file cabinet in his office. The original autographs, where am I? I mean... All these centuries, theologians and archaeologists combing the earth for one fragment of the original autographs, and who knew they resided in a file cabinet in Greenville, South Carolina all along? <laughs> Biblical observation number one. Inspiration doesn't begin with writing. Until something is spoken, you don't have breath. You don't have anything to write. Inspiration is God-breathed. It is transmitted through language. All scripture is given by inspiration. You don't have anything to write until you have something to write from. If you don't speak, there's nothing to record. Inspiration starts with speaking. They will teach you it starts with writing. 
if you accept that point of departure, you've already lost the argument because they will eventually win once you accept that point of departure. Folks, it's all coming down to winning the battle before it's fought. Don't accept the false point of departure. If you're going to talk about inspiration, and you're going to talk about scripture, and you're going to borrow those terms from the Bible, then you have to let the Bible define those terms. The Bible doesn't say that pieces of paper were inspired. Men were inspired to speak through God inspiring them, and when they spoke, God spoke through them, and then through the pen of human amanuensis, a record was made. It didn't begin when the pen touched the paper. It began when God the Spirit spoke into the heart of man, and then he opened his mouth, and he began to speak, and then it was heard, because faith doesn't come by reading and reading by the original manuscripts. That ain't what it says, ladies and gents. It says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Don't accept a a, a humanistic, naturalistic, superstitious, false, satanic point of departure because you're only going to end up with the same kind of conclusion. Biblical observation number two, inspiration doesn't expire. I was saved. I've lived a life of madness and folly and sin and righteousness and being good and being bad and being carnal and being spiritual and at some times being pure in my motives and at other times having my left hand inform my right hand very, very well of what it intends to be doing. There are things I'm ashamed of and things that I hope come out in the wash. Well, maybe I get a nugget or two with the JSC. We'll have to see. But I'll tell you this. I'm going to die. And I'm going to be food for worms. And then you know what's going to happen? Just like a seed that falls to the earth, except... A, a corn of wheat fall to the earth and die. I'm going to be un, in the ground. Listen, I'm going to be with the Lord in my soul and there's coming a day. There's coming a morning. There's coming a great getting up morning where for the first time in my life I will have a body that I am not ashamed of. I will be as hot as I've always wanted to be. Hotter. Hotter which is a great comfort to me because if I do end up naked for a thousand years, I would prefer it be in that body and not this one. (laughs) The real, the real curse, the real curse would be, Bartlett, you're naked in that body. Now there's motivation to serve Jesus. You know what? You know what 1 Corinthians 15 teaches? I'll be the same person. I will go from what you see now to a body that meets the full measure and stature standards of glorified Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it won't require a second salvation. It will be the same breath life of what you see right here and right now. 
You want to know why that is? Because you can go from something that needs to be refined into perfection without requiring a second act of inspiration. God will never need to breathe his spirit into me again, even if I die and am resurrected. I'm just as saved as I'm always going to be. And I can't lose my salvation because the breath of God is eternal and it is the breath of God that gave me my birth. Inspiration doesn't expire. This talk of the King James translators needing to have a second act of inspiration come from a bunch of pagans who don't accept Bible definitions for Bible terms, don't accept their point of departure. Don't let them define the terms. Well, what about other languages and other Bibles? A good question, at least potentially. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, like most questions, its value is contingent on the spirit in which it is asked. CT and TR advocates who object to one perfect Bible in one language as being some vague racist or Anglo-centric sentiment simply haven't thought the issue through as it completely ignores the fact that this was the exact setup in the Old Testament and it didn't prevent anyone from getting the word of God that he wanted them to have. Well, how could you believe that God would only preserve his word in one language? What are you talking about? What other example in scripture do you have? Well, I just think, you know, it, it, you know I don't see how God can be, be careful. You better be careful when you start saying, I don't see how God could. I don't see how God could. Who cares what you understand about God? His ways are past finding out. What does that prove? You don't understand something about God, so it must not be true? How arrogant is that? You're telling me that you think that the Lord's not coming back until the 657 dialects in Papua New Guinea alone get their own version of the Bible, and if that doesn't happen, God isn't God? Why is it you're always using a fully developed language for that illustration? Well, what about the Rihanna Valera? Oh, well, what about the, well, what about what? You list off all of the countries that you think should have versions of the Bible for God to be God. Why don't you ever list all of them? Why don't you ever list the dialects where there are only about 120 vocabulary words in their language and there's only about 18 different phonetic sounds? Some of those being clicks and pops for words. You know what you know, Bunky? You know God's not going to give them a version of the Bible, so you don't use that language as your example. You use Spanish. You're a hypocrite. God is God if he doesn't give anybody a version of the Bible. You better be careful with that talk. You better be real careful. What's the magic number? 17? If he preserved his word in 17 languages at once, would God be God? Why stop there? 22? Oh, no, no, 21. 21's about the limit. Where are you getting that from? Where are you getting this magic number of how many languages God has to give people on this planet his word for him to be God? Where'd you get that idea? What's the matter with your brain, man?
the Bible perfectly preserved in one language, in one nation, wasn't an impediment to Nineveh, was it? You know, what with it being the largest single revival in history? When God wanted to give them his words, what did he do? Did he send a team of Bible translators? No. He certainly wouldn't have sent a team of reformed manuscript professors if for any other reason that being reformed, they wouldn't have deemed the Ninevites capable of salvation. I mean, what with only Israel being the elect in the Old Testament and all? Yet oddly, some of that elect in the Old Testament lost the Holy Spirit. I think that violated one of the eternal decrees. And some of the elect went to hell. You know what's a weird thing about whatever is happening right now? <laughs> you know, it's a weird thing. You've got, you've got non-elect people going to heaven in the Bible, and you've got elect people going to hell. I mean, listen, folks, it's a kick in the head. It's enough to make you not be a Calvinist. But I digress. No, instead, you know what he sent? He sent a cranky, backslidden, racist Zionist who didn't even want them to repent. But they repented anyway. You want to know why? Because that idiot did the one thing he was supposed to do. He gave them the actual words of God. He didn't give them a piece of paper. He gave it to him verbally. Somebody translated it. And in the words of Alan Shelby to God, that, was, that ain't no thing but a chicken wing. God can handle that. And that plan worked. A racist, selfish idiot shows up who's only thinking of himself. He doesn't even like the people he's ministering to, but okay, fine. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begun. Oh, crap, they got saved. That's what happened. I'm so, aren't they, I bet they're thankful today that somebody who refused to give them the words but just loved their precious little Ninevite souls didn't show up because you know where they'd be? They'd be crispy critters today, folks. People don't need man to love them People need the words of God. <clears throat> well, what about the Buddhist monk child growing up in the monastery that has never heard? <sighs> Listen. <clears throat> Are you ever going to bring a real example up or are we just going to stay in hypotheticals for the rest of our stinking lives to make actual points? You know, in rhetoric, that's called a logical fallacy, i.e., if you were actually debating with a judge, that'd be points off for you. But let's go with your idiotic thinking. Let's talk about the poor Buddhist monk kid who you don't even know exists that's in a monastery somewhere who has, by your words, no hope. No hope. It's not how Paul described the heathen. But, you know, when did we start using the Bible to define our terms? First of all, 
when it comes to this Buddhist monk child. We, as truth advocates, need to be sure that we ask the heretic this question. Number one, what are you doing about it yourself? I'll bet nothing. I'll bet nothing. So let's first dispense with this charade that their motive here is some professed love for the never-dying souls of Buddhist children. I mean, out of the interest of keeping the discourse honest, no lie is of the truth after all. They're not doing anything about evangelizing China, but they seem awfully concerned about it for the purposes of making a King James Bible advocate look bad. I think that's interesting, don't you? Having therefore established they don't really care about this kid, let's move on to point two. What do they know for sure God is doing about it? What do you know what God is doing in that monk, uh, uh, in, in that monk's heart, in that monastery, in that country, in that region? Man, you talk about ethnocentrism? Listen, you want to know what I think racism is? You want to know what, I, oh yes, we can't wait to hear what Bartlett thinks racism is. This should be rich. Okay, listen. I'll tell you what I think racism is. The very idea that a white guy needs to show up and translate it for them seems at least as arrogant and presumptuous as demanding that they need to learn English so that they can read a King James Bible. <clears throat> Wouldn't you agree? Which incidentally, BTW, very few King James Bible-only advocates actually believe that, but even if they did, how one can ignore the consummate duplicity in condemning a bunch of white American fundies for anglifying indigenous peoples by telling them they need to learn English in order to have access to the word of God, again, knowing this is the view of but a scant few, while deep down they know that if they could have a go at the same indigenous peoples, they would tell them that they need to learn at least two different languages first if they wanted to have access to the word of God. One of which, BTW, being a dead language, which by definition can't actually be learned, for as any linguist, any linguist will tell you, if it can't actually be spoken, it can't actually be learned. And they don't really believe even then these indigenous peoples would actually have access to scripture. For if you could get them to be honest, and it's almost an impossibility, mind you. But if you could get them to be honest, they would tell you that scripture can only refer to an original autograph. And unlike the racist nary a piece of literature King James onlyest, all of these charlatans actually believe this. All of them. So my question is this. When did it become more racist to impose English upon non-English speaking peoples than to impose upon the same Koine Aramaic Hebrew with possibly a dash of Coptic and Sanskrit? I mean, let me get this straight. They would begrudge my anglifying of the aborigine while affording themselves the liberty to Hellenize the heathen? What the what? <laughs> Man. <laughs> I, 
Well, you're, you're angry. You know what? You, you grow up having your position mocked by other Christians, having your father openly condemned as a heretic by the Southern Baptist Convention in a newspaper. You have camp counselors at church camps wait for me to leave to get my kids aside and talk them out of their position of faith when I trusted my kids to those people. You be called a racist your whole life because you happen to believe something other than what somebody else believes that doesn't have a stinking thing to do with race and see what kind of a mood you're in after three decades. I'm sick of it. I ain't taking it on the chin anymore. I don't think we should be doormats. You know what I think we should do? I think we should start fighting back. That's what I think. I've already turned the other cheek. I only got two of them. I'm out of cheeks and I'm out of time. Let's look at Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17. All right. We're going to analyze this from the logic of faith, and then we're going to analyze it from the logic of unbelief. You ready? Here we go. How shall they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they going to do that? Well, by you learning other languages, by the way, why is it that everybody learns Greek when they go to school? How many, how many books are in the Old Testament? Uh, 39? How many in the New? 27? I mean, wh- 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 why doesn't everybody go and learn Hebrew? Oh, here's why. Because when you learn Greek, you're not learning a language. You're learning Koine. It's a dead language. No one knows how to speak it. So you can take it, and in two semesters, you can have learned it. And by learn it mean some vocabulary with some conjugations. Right? And then you learn the alphabet, and all of a sudden, well, this kid who couldn't quite pull a D in consumer math pulled off a dead language in one year. wonder how he did that. Of course, if he had to learn Hebrew, the problem with that is that's a real language maybe take six or seven years and you actually have to be intelligent. You know Greek. Yeah. Yeah, you know Greek. Yeah, and I know pig Latin Hungarian. You know, you don't know any more Greek than my dog knows Greek. You have access to a lexicon, friend. Don't tell me you know Greek. Well, you know, the, or, the original manuscripts. You've never seen an original manuscript. Well, the, the, the original Greek says, which original Greek? There were 5,000 of these things. Why do you keep talking like there's one of them? Well, because you're a liar. You're a stinking liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire. <coughs> Watch. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? There's your Buddhist monk for you right there. Let's see how God treats the Buddhist monk. Kid. Always a kid, you know. 
We've got to throw the emotional in there. Well, what about the children? <laughs> you always know. <clears throat> Here we go. I'll go logic of unbelief first, then we'll read it with the logic of faith. You ready? <clears throat> Here's how I see it from the logic of unbelief. <clears throat> Here we go. This is actually how they, they would look at it. <clears throat> and how shall they believe in whom they have not read? And how shall they read without a manuscript? And how shall they interpret except they be sent to seminary? And how shall we pretend to know non-extant Greek dialect except there be a lexicon? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all be, uh, obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed the report? So then education cometh by reading and reading by eclectic texts. That is the actual interpretation of that passage as somebody reads it from the logic of unbelief. That's not me being mean. They will say it. Just listen. Well, how do we read it? Well, we're crazy. We read the words. And so when we read it, it comes out like this. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him whom they have not heard, not read? And how shall, they, how shall they hear, not read, without a preacher, not manuscript? And how shall they preach, not interpret, except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. It's speaking, it's speaking, it's speaking, it's speaking, it's speaking. It's not paper, it's not paper, it's not paper. It's words from a preacher who has been sent. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Brothers and sisters, there is a logic of faith and there is a logic of unbelief. The logic of unbelief wants to make the issues of inspiration and transmission preservation all about pieces of paper. If you let them get away with it, if you concede to them that point of departure, you have lost the debate before it even began you let them draw you out of your position of a faith-based view of preservation into the realm of humanism and naturalism and archaeology and historiography before the first blow, and you have lost. I learned some things on the playground. My dad, I went to public school. Now, if you're a homeschooler or a Christian schooler, you would say, I finally figured out what went wrong with Bartlett. Maybe you're right. But I went to public, I was a public school kid. My dad told me why I was going to public school. He gave me a bunch of reasons. He dropped me off public school. I went to Christian school for kindergarten. He took me out of there. He drops me off first day of school, first grade. So help me, he gives me a speech on the way to school. The night before, my dad taught me two chokeholds and three judo throws. <laughs> my dad was a fifth degree black belt in judo. He taught me an osodagari. He taught me an Ippon. He taught me a uh, uh, Haida Gamay. He taught me uh, how to grapple. Three nights leading up to my first day of school. That's how I got ready for it. <laughs> taught me the most obvious place to strike when you're fighting a male. We won't get into that. 
Taught me how to throw a punch. Taught me where to throw a punch. Right here on the nose, right here on the chin, little to the side, little to the side. If you can get that knuckle right there on the side, you'll drop him like a hot rock. Bye, son. Love you. That's <laughs> a true story. So, I learned some things in the playground. You know, one of the things I learned in the playground was this. No one is as tough as advertised. And I also learned that no one is as weak. Any kid willing to fight mad and not play by the rules is a challenge for anyone. If you're willing to fight mad and not play by their rules, you will not go silently into that good night, friend. You're a challenge for anyone. Nobody is as smart and as educated as advertised. Don't fall for it. I also learned this. Most fights are won during the posturing before the scrap actually takes place. Because the posturing determines the mindset of the combatants. How you posture before the fight determines if you're going to fight to win or fight to survive. The one who's fighting to survive will always lose. In earnestly contending for the faith, dear friends, never, never, never lose the stare down. Don't get drawn into their fighting style. Fight mad. Kick him where it counts. And above all, if you're going to enter the fray, be in it to win it. Mm, that was weird. If you're going to apply what you're learning this week to those who are attacking this book, you needed to hear what I just said. So what are the, the points? Well, we'll go very quickly. Luckily, most of these have been covered, so I can just list them off. Number one, the logic of faith makes preservation a doctrine which focuses on languages. We'll call this one already covered. I will say this, though. Do you believe that the word of God is your final authority for all matters of faith and practice? Amen. Okay, amen. Everybody says amen to that, and praise the Lord, you guys mean it. That's why I like it when I, I hear those amens. But everybody says that, don't they? That's quite a statement if you think about it. All matters of faith and practice. Whew, you're going to throw that out there. You're going to have to mind your P's and Q's. You just covered a lot of material there, buddy. How about, what about, how do you feel about a trade? Have you ever let the word of God, how about this? Have you ever gone to the word of God and said, God, show me what translation is? Is the word translation in the Bible? Is that a Bible word? It is. You gonna, what are you going to let Bob Jones, you going to let BB, what are you going to do? You going to let beef, bacon, and cheese and, and, and freaking Springtown? And, and what, in Hill, Hillbilly Land? You going to let those guys tell you what the Bible means by inspiration? The Bible, does the Bible get a turn? 
at defining its own term? <laughs> the word translation in the Bible is used three times. You know the first time it's used? Enoch is translated. You know what God does with Enoch? He picks him up out of one spot and he places him in another spot. You know what inspiration is? God picks up his breath out of one language group. It's not transferred through manuscripts. It's transferred through languages. He picks up his inspiration out of one language and he places it in another language. And you're told that when you go from one language to another, you get an inferior product. But did Enoch end up in an inferior state when he was translated? Well, my, my, my. And here is God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You know the second time translation is used? It's talking about you, Smoothie. You. You were translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. In an inferior state, God's gonna take you and he's gonna pick you up out of this planet and when you do, you're gonna get a glorified body and you're gonna be up in the physical presence and in your flesh, you will see God and all the heavenly host. And then what are you gonna say? Meh, just a translation. And what's everybody so excited about? I mean, we just got translated. You know the third time it's used? kingdoms of this world are translated to the kingdoms of our Lord and the power of his Christ and he shall reign forever. Now where is it that you got the idea that when God translates something it ends up in an inferior state? Where'd you get that idea? You didn't get it from the Bible, friend. You got that from somebody interpreting the Bible for you. I believe the Bible term for that is private interpretation. The logic of unbelief says a copy can't be inspired. Well, we've already seen from Jeremiah 36 what that's all about. Of course, Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 21 Christ takes a book, mind you, it's always a book, and he reads from the book, and when he's done reading the book, what does Christ say? This day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. How's that possible? Was he reading from the original manuscripts? Well, some people say yes. It's asinine, but some people say yes. But when they do, they have a problem, don't they? Because in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from Isaiah as well. And what does that Ethiopian eunuch have? Says that he has what? Scripture. Well, now how did that original autograph of Isaiah that was in the temple that Christ read, what did the Ethiopian eunuch do? Steal it?
The logic of unbelief holds that copies are only based on originals. The logic of faith holds that originals are based off of copies. Proverbs 25, 1. These also are, the, uh, these are also Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. Let me get this straight. The Proverbs of Solomon are the, uh, the, uh, the words of Solomon from Proverbs chapter 25 were put into an original autograph from a copy which the men of Hezekiah made. We've got a problem there, don't we? We have the original autograph being a copy. Uh-oh. Now we've done step through the looking glass, haven't we? Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35. Do you know what the king is commanded to do? He's to write out a copy. And when he writes out that copy, he reads it. And when he reads it, he's breathing. And the Spirit of God goes through that, and it responds, and the people of God respond to it. And people sing, and people dance, and it's called Scripture. The same thing happens in Ezra chapter 4. The same thing happens in Ezra chapter 5. The logic of unbelief says you can't go from one language to another and get an exact translation. We got a problem. We got a problem. Burning bush speaks to who? Moses. Moses is too humble for his own good. So, okay, fine, we'll take Aaron. So here comes Moses. Moses tells Aaron what you know, the burning bush said. All right, Aaron gets the general idea of what's going on. They go down to Pharaoh. They start speaking to Pharaoh. What language do they speak in? They spoke in Egyptian. God spoke to Moses. Moses makes a verbal copy of it to Aaron. Aaron writes down the copy, which actually is the original. And yet then when it's spoken to Pharaoh, it's spoken in Egyptian. And what was spoken in Egyptian is written down in the original autograph. Pharaoh speaks back in Egyptian. They write down the words of Pharaoh. It goes in an original autograph, and the whole thing is then translated, copied by the Masora, and then later translated into about 27 different languages until it gets to an English Bible. Well, riddle me that, Batman. The logic of faith is based on words, not ideas. The logic of faith is based on languages, not manuscripts. The logic of faith begins with the promise of God and moves forward. Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. You keep it. And avoid what? Profane and vain babblings and the oppositions of what? Of science. Science is coming after what you received initially as faith. Timothy, you started with faith. If you don't end with faith, it's because a scientific method stole it from you. Don't let that happen. Which some professing have erred. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? Did you doubt those words when you got saved? All right, you know, I'll trust this whole gospel thing, but I don't know. No, you, you believed it implicitly. How do you walk with the Lord today? How do you have a relationship with God today? With his words. Believe his words now as much as you did the day you got saved. 
not as much as you did the day you graduated from seminary. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. You'll abound with thanksgiving if that happens. But, 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 beware, beware. There's a threat to this faith. Do you know what it's called? It's called philosophy. And the Bible says that it will spoil you because it's after the tradition of men built out of the rudiments of the world. The logic of faith begins with a negative view of man. You ever seen in the Bible how many, what the Bible has to say about doctors of theology and scribes and religious leaders and scientists? Not too good. Not too good. Boy, am I skipping. I've got like 12 minutes. What have I done? What have I done? All right, we're going to get to this, and if I don't finish this, I'll finish it tomorrow. I'm going to look at a practical example of the differences between critical thinking from the logic of unbelief and the faith-based view of preservation of the logic of faith and how they, compl- they produce completely different results. All right, so we're going we're gonna to start with a question here. We're going to work off this question for the end of today and the start of tomorrow. You guys will need this for the playground. Okay? This is playground material. I'm going to give you a few throws, a few chokeholds. How to grapple and how to kick him where it counts. Okay, you can learn the less, you, you, you can learn the rest on your own, but you've got to have this for the first day of school. Okay? Where was the word of God before 1611? Ha, ha, ha. Where was the word of God? Well, they want you to answer that question so then they can say, well, what about 1769? You see. Ha, ha, ha. Okay, what are they saying? The language or the uh, logic of unbelief asks where was the word of God before 1611? Okay, so what's our answer? Better be careful how you answer that question. Cast not your pearls before swine. Answer not a fool according to his folly. And yet sometimes answer a fool according to his folly. Well, how do we apply that to this question? Well, that's what we're going to do. The the logic of faith retorts back to the dishonest question that that preservation is a process of perfection. Preservation is a process of perfection. When you plant a seed, it takes a long while for that thing to come back up. When you plant a seed there is a gestation period before you get what is expected. He gave some apostles. He gave some prophets. He gave some evangelists. He gave some pastors. For what? For the perfecting of saints into the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We know from James that is the trying of our faith worketh what? Patience. And patience has its what? It has its perfect work. It has its perfecting work. It's a process. The God of all grace will make you perfect. He will establish and strengthen you after what? After you've suffered a while. It's a process. Okay, well, that's all well and good, but those contexts aren't exactly dealing with the word of God. Agreed. But they do deal with perfection, and that's what we say the whole answer to this question is about. So now let's apply the principle a little bit more directly. 
Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 32. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And Jesus Christ, being the spirit-filled man that he was, refuses to call names and be sarcastic. Because if you call people names and you're sarcastic, you must be in the flesh. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall, uh uh-oh, what? You know what that is? The third day I shall be perfected. Now, that's the incarnate word of God talking about a perfection process over a period of time. Put that in your oatmeal pipe and smoke it. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? Okay, well, I don't know exactly, but I know that that's still not talking about the carnate word of God. No, it's just talking about the actual word of God. What's true of the seed is true of the seed. They both are perfected. Once again, we are forced to confront the hypocrisy of the logic of unbelief. Why doesn't that work for the word of God if it works for the word of God? So let me get this straight. You're saying that the Bible has a perfecting process through languages and cultures, through a specific family line of manuscripts? Ha, 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 ha. Well, wait. Why are you laughing? What's so funny? Isn't that how Jesus Christ came into the world? Genesis 3.16, the seed of the woman was promised. How long did it take that to show up? Oh, by my count, around 4,000 years. 4,000 years from the promise to the manifestation of the seed being passed through a perfecting process of specific languages in a specific family line. What's so stinking funny? No, the word of God incarnate existed, was promised, was preserved through a specific family line, was manifest over a long period of time, then perfected, then both accepted and rejected, but mostly rejected. And here's the kicker. Do you know who he was mostly rejected for? He was mostly rejected for a Roman authority. We have no king but Caesar. Can you imagine waiting for 4,000 years to get your promised seed through a process of perfection, and when it finally shows up, you dump him for something Roman and corrupt? Sound familiar? You know how these anti-theists debate Christians? They always ask them the same question in a debate. I've been studying debate for about two two and a half decades. Debate's a fascinating thing. It's fascinating because you learn all the questions. Once you learn all the questions, you can sound brilliant. You don't need to know the answers. Debate's not about knowing the answers. It's about knowing the questions. There's only about 35 questions. They're asked in different ways. You learn 35 answers. You can walk into a room, and two hours later, people will think that you are stinking brilliant, and you have to have your wife balance your stinking checkbook. It's awesome. You throw in some big words and zippity-boo-bah, you're a genius. Poof. 
Well, if Jesus Christ was the only hope for man, why did it take him so long to show up? Now listen, and we'll close here. Do you know what the anti-theist charlatan will say to that question? He will say, well, that's as much of an historical argument as it is a textual. Oh, really? Is it now? Observe the lunacy and hypocrisy. Let's start with the lunacy. He will then wrongly divide the word of truth because his actual Bible knowledge is worse than his koine and will misapply Ephesians 1.10 because normally these guys are post-millennialists and universalists. Thus, what is clearly a prophetic passage is presented by the philosopher Christian as being fulfilled in the past. Insert more hypocrisy. Ephesians 1.10 that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. They think that that means Christ in the first advent. It's clearly a second advent prophecy, but they don't see a second advent because they're amillennialists, so they don't know what to do with it. Here's what they say fullness of time is. Are you ready for this? Are you guys ready for this? All right, here we go. Fullness of time, they will say, is for Christ to have shown up. There first needed to be certain conditions met on the planet. So when he showed up, it would have its maximum effect. The word of God had to wait for certain historical conditions to be met before the perfect seed can show up. And therefore, it had to be the right time. The right peoples needed to be developed. The right cultures needed to be developed. This is sounding awfully ethnocentric to me. I'm offended. There had to be the right language. There had to be commerce. There had to be Roman roads for travel. There had to be a universal empire that was colonizing through its commerce so copies of the word of God after he left could be sent out to the churches. Oh, 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 really? But when a King James advocate rightly contextualizes a passage of scripture appealing to history as a general revelation uh, verification using the same arguments for the, developed, uh, uh, for the development of the carnate word of God, i.e. time, the Philadelphian age, development of language, English, at a very apex of the empire's then universal language, as it continues to be, I might add, through specific peoples during an era of increased trade on ships sent from a colonizing empire in routes of commerce. But when we use the same arguments that they conveniently use to get their tails out of a crack in a debate, all of a sudden we're laughed at. Ha, 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 ha. Except this time when we laugh, they don't think it's so funny when the joke's on them because there's something you can always bank on about this crowd. They can pitch, but they can't catch. A lot of laughing from this crowd that doesn't believe that God can fulfill a promise to bring forth a supernatural seed through imperfect means because he is a perfect God and it's bringing perfection through imperfection that actually substantiates the fact that he is God and that's how he has always operated in history and in scripture. I know somebody who didn't believe that God could bring a seed because it defied science and human reason. 
Sarah, wherefore didst thou laugh? Lord, I laugh not. Yea, but thou didst laugh. Hmm. Yea, but thou didst laugh. I've heard a lot of laughing in my life. If it was good enough for Peter, it was good enough for you. Ha, 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 ha. You're a bibliolater. Ha, 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 ha. Oh yeah, at the judgment seat of Christ, I'm sure there will be a scathing rebuke for those idolatrous folk who had too much faith in God's ability to preserve every one of his words. I'll take that punishment among the panoply of punishments being dished out. I'll tell you the line I don't want to be in. The ones who laughed at God's promise to supernaturally preserve his seed. Oh, we didn't laugh at you, Lord. We didn't laugh at you, Lord. Nay, but thou didst laugh. I know I'm going to get mine, and I ain't looking forward to it, folks, but after I get my licking and I keep on ticking, I think I'm going to enjoy that. Maybe not. That's probably the flesh. Last eve I passed beside the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with the beating years of time. How many anvils have ye had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye. The anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought, the anvil of God's word. For ages, skeptic blows have beat upon. Yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed. The hammer's gone. Alas, the academics and anti-theists and ecumenics have set themselves in array against the superlative cause the great conflict. The war against the certainty of God's words wages on. They will fail as surely as God's promise of preservation holds steadfast and sure. As surely as the very gates of hell are repelled from the church. Yet I am loath to concede the dreaded possibility, if not the probability, that if our Lord tarries, this sedition may very well indeed flourish with some and their children and their grandchildren. But by the grace of God, not with us, not with ours, not with theirs, not the living faith fellowship, not on this watch, not on this playground. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Maranatha.
Well, he struggles with it. He does. Huh. Yeah, I, uh, she did, and she had to go back last night. Yeah, she was here, she ate, and she drove back. Yeah. I mean, I don't have like. Perfect. Thanks for setting me up. <laughs> what I do? I'm, gla I'm glad you're going first every night. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad. To, I don't know how that was a setup, but I'll take it. Is he gonna finish the fight on the third round? <laughs> he got round one. Bad dreams. What up, bro? I know. I never used to talk to you. He's gonna find me in the rock star. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Say hi when I can. Say every time I'm in a room when you're in a room, you're yeah. kind of by yourself. What are we doing? I'll show up. I'm more natural that way. Ow. <laughs> Listen, if you're one for one, I would never, ever get on anybody's side. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That is, people that want to do that, I don't think golf is a good idea. Garrett, step off from your head. Listen, I, uh, yeah. I had such social anxiety, <laughs> I had to take special therapy for four years times a week to stop stammering. Stop stammering? When I was in third through about the end of my seventh grade year, I couldn't even have a conversation. And my dad paid for a big time dude from the University of Missouri. And uh, he came down two to three and sometimes four times a week. And I had to do therapy for like two hours. I had to do these was practices. Was it speech therapy or was it like social? It was both. Well, what he was doing is he was doing speech therapy, but as I as I got older, I realized I was also it was also psychoanalysis. And my parents told me later, although they they didn't tell me at the time, that I had social anxiety disorder, and I still stammer all the time. But I've learned how to. It's hard to explain. I've learned how to mask it. And even like then, up there, I probably actually stammered close to 30 times if not, in that hour and a half. But you have something on the top of your mouth called the alveolar ridge. And if you can massage it 
from front to back. It does something to your palate to relax it. And what I've learned to do is act like I'm pausing or I'm thinking. 